Hello, friends. My name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. If you want to learn more about my work, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and check out any of the mini documentaries that I've been making for the past eight years now on everything ranging from the Indonesia trash epidemic to the state of the GMO protests in Hawaii to the importance of open watersheds in Baja and everything in between. Head over to my website, kyle.surf, to check it out. My guest today is with one of the smartest people I know, and he also happens to live down the street from me. Randy Garrett is a math teacher at PCS. He is an accomplished surfer and spear fisherman, and he's the guy who took me under his wing when I was just learning how to spearfish. When I was a complete kook, I still am kind of a complete kook when it comes to spearfishing, but uh, Randy was nice enough to knock on my door every so often, 4.30 in the morning, Kyle, get out of bed, we're going spearfishing. And I would hop into his car, we would drive south, and he would show me the ropes. And during those drives, he would always be blowing my mind with biology. Randy has a voracious appetite for knowledge, and he knows a lot about the world of mushrooms. And during this conversation, we went deep. We went deep underground into the world of mycelium. And uh, I learned a ton. I learned a ton. And if you enjoy this conversation and want to learn more, you can head over to my website where I've included show notes and resources where you can dive even deeper into the world of fungi. So without further ado, get your learning caps on. We're going to learn about mushrooms. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. You have every excuse not to be waking up early and either surfing at 5.30 in the morning or going spearfishing or going mushroom foraging. You've got kids. You've got a wife. You've, you've got to get to school to go teach some kids every morning. What keeps you doing it? Um, it's inspiring. Oh, cool. It's, it's, it's super cool. I mean, you got me Thank into you. you got me into spearfishing, and on those trips that we'd take down to go go out for maybe an hour because you'd have to be at school at 8.30 in the morning. Yeah. What keeps you going? Um, I love the visceral experience of reality. And I want, at anything I do, I want to get better at it. That, And I love learning. I'm just crazy about learning stuff. And that's actually a part of like the mushroom foraging thing. But um, it's... Uh, I feel more alive throughout the day. I feel like I'm a better person to every single person I interact with. And I feel like it's it's like a, a communion moment where I'm part of something a lot bigger, like spearfishing or surfing or mushroom hunting. I go into this whole like different ecosystem. And now I, I really see that I'm not in this little space in my head, that I'm actually in a much bigger picture. And as small as that makes me feel, it also, it humbles me 
and being humble makes me open. It makes me feel like I'm a part of something huge. And that's like, you could feel alone out of that, but I don't. I wind up feeling like a part of this just giant thing. And I find it so miraculous. Yeah, it seems like it's very therapeutic for you. Yeah, it totally wakes me up. How did you how did you learn that? Was that something that you learned from a young age or was there a breaking point um, psychologically where you realized that you needed to be out in nature and getting these visceral experiences? Um, I was really drawn to, um, when I was a kid, I was really drawn to activities that I could do by myself, um, like play guitar or play golf or surf. Um, I tried team activities and they're fun They're but, um, and the relationship, I, I was an only child and relationships with other people for a good part of my childhood were actually kind of awkward. I, I won't lie. I had a real hard time figuring out why kids could be just so mean to each other. I just didn't get it. Like I had no like goof around with the guys. I just didn't have that. I was like, why can't we be civil to each other? So I would get into a lot of like petty fights when I was a kid. And so you throw, give me golf clubs and I, I don't actually have to like compete or rely on somebody else or um, give me a surfboard. And it's like, I just have to figure my place through this crowd and like through a vigorous application of energy, all of a sudden, like I could be getting a ton of waves and not actually like the, the, the crowd didn't seem to matter. It's because most people aren't fired up. And the other thing is in doing any particular activity, like any of the things that I just listed, um, I, I have, I found that I always wanted this. I, and, and I still want this to seek an, another level of refinement. I want to do, if I'm going to do something, I want to do it the very best I can possibly do it. And of course I'm going to fail, but at certain aspects of it but every single time i fail i just i find another opportunity to learn it gives me a moment to reflect are you and, hard, are you hard on yourself um yeah kind of i mean i used to be super hard on myself i used to internalize things and 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 that energy would like turn into a little like seething ball and 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 it would define like who i was i was I was really unhappy with myself at points. And yeah. then I realized I could take that energy and just transform it into, oh, I'm going to just get better at this. And then all of a sudden, like the seething ball just kind of went away. Yeah, it's it's the difference between saying I am shitty or I did that shitty. Exactly. That is the big transition. Uh, or I, um, I take responsibility for this um, as opposed to I am responsible for it. So I, there's the choice, like the freedom. I'm going to choose to own having done something wrong. And now the neck, the very next step, it's like, it's like the Native American myth. It's the phoenix just burns out. And it's like immediately from the ashes, <laughs> big powerful bird rises again. I love it. I love it. So when did, um, when did you get into mushroom foraging? Um, so I started actually, um, there's a a really defined moment 
in my life that I remember really clearly. I was working in a bank in Switzerland when I was, um, it was, I was 21 years old. It was just after I had graduated from college. I had a degree in math and a minor in German literature and language. And um, I just, I wanted to travel for work. I didn't want to go into like a cash negative experience. And I applied for a job at a bank in Switzerland as a, um, as a, a translator and um, international finance person because they need people who speak English um, and German and can do math. And, and that was at that point. I mean, I don't know what the situation is now. That was like 1995. How old were you? Um, I was 21. 21? Yeah. And how'd you learn German? Um, I, so I took... I, that, that's funny too. I walked up to um, my second year. I was studying math and I, I, my university, UCSC, had a really rich language department. And I really wanted to learn a, learn a second language. So I went and I audited a French class and I audited a German class. And the French class was oversubscribed and the German class had space. So I started taking German. And, um, and um, I found that it, compared to the math classes, it was actually not that bad. Um, it just took a level of commitment of every time you find a German speaker, start speaking German to them. If they answer in English, keep speaking German. And they'll switch back to German with you. And, and so I would do that. And, um, and it got to the point where when I was interviewed for the job at the bank in Switzerland, they're like, whoa, you can kind of speak German and you know math and you speak English. Maybe you could help us with some of our international transaction problems with Nigeria and Thailand where we just can't seem to make things meet with the bank on the other end because the, the international banking language is English, right? So um, I would, my job at that point was, and I, I don't mean to diverge too much. From no, the no, mushroom th theme. no, this is kind of what we do. It's okay. fine. We're, we're, it's, you know, we go off on little spores. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> first, first bad book, joke of many in the mushroom episode. Oh, there's, there's lots of room there for, for jokes in, in the mycological world. Um, so I, uh, um, in, in doing the interview process, um, with the, the folks for the bank, they, they hired me on and, um, they basically, their expectation was that I communicate with these foreign banks and, um, that I go plowing through some of their, um, old transactions and rectify faulty transactions that were like. Somebody transferred 360 Swiss francs to Nigeria and nobody's seen it since. So um, being a native English speaker, I got in there and just started throwing stuff against the wall in my conversations with them saying in some of the to some of these banks. Um, well, and I would completely fabricate this. And my employer said it was OK that I did this. I'd say. Um, the yeah, Swiss yeah. Bank Union is going to boycott all transactions with your institution if this transaction that we're talking about that happened two and a half years ago doesn't materialize. There's no such thing, by the way. There is no, <laughs> I just made that up. No, it sounds exactly like the banking system, though, right? <laughs> we just fabricate things, make it up. Someone will figure it out down the line. Well, they, so what's funny is like all of a sudden the Nigerians would say, uh, Here's the 360 Swiss francs. And so um, that was the job I was doing. And I met all these really interesting people. And one of the things, cause I, I wanted to go and just meet people and do, I wanted to be somewhere else. I figured I could go and travel into a completely different country. And the only thing that would be the same is what I brought with me. And 
everything else would be completely different. And I figured I would learn a ton about myself. And so, and that was my primary motivation going to Switzerland. Um, I mean, it was a well-paying job and it was interesting. It was a little far from the ocean, which was hard, but um, having grown up near the ocean and surfing and all that, but I just wanted a different experience. And one of the experiences that I got invited to go do um, was to go mushroom hunting. We, we first we went mountain bike riding in um in the jura which is the mountain range in between france and switzerland and we stayed at um what is essentially a a publicly available hut where you could spend the night and there was a restaurant that you could walk to and at that restaurant they had fondue and i love fondue but on there they had um fondue with wild mushrooms i'm like well i gotta give that a go so i ate it and I started pulling these wild mushrooms out and I'm like, I can't get enough of these things. They're so good. And we wound up finding a couple on our way back. We would stop and pick some. And um, and then the people I was with, thank goodness, knew what they were doing. So none of us died or got sick. And, um, and, and then I realized as I was cooking for myself that these wild mushrooms that I totally fell in love with on this experience were crazy expensive. Um, and... So I would try and find people to go hunt with in Switzerland. And one of the things that they have in Switzerland that you can do is you can go and pick a harvest of wild mushrooms and bring them into um, the drugstore, which is called an apotheca or an apothecary. Um, and they have on staff a trained um, mycologist, a mushroom identification person. And they will go through your mushrooms and help you identify them so that everything's copacetic you don't get hurt nobody gets sick nobody dies all that and um there's not a lot of room for error when you're learning how to forage mushrooms yeah it's not like a i'll give these a go kind of thing it's It's like skydiving you don't go alone your first time exactly exactly so much so um and coming from what's called a a mycophobic country the united states in the 70s and 80s when i grew up uh, the story that i'd heard was whenever you see a mushroom kick it stomp on it but don't touch it because it might kill you. Um, and and so I, all we were taught all in at least in the environment I grew up in Southern California that all wild mushrooms were were really evil organisms out to to kill you. And um, and the truth is really far, far away from that. Um, so I had this great experience in Switzerland and I wound up traveling and I, I, after 18 months, you, you don't have um, work visas that are available to you anymore. So I, um, I, 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 um, I did stopped mushroom hunting and, and I wound up um, several years later meeting um, a French woman um, who worked for Trader Joe's in California and um and she knew mushrooms and well we wound up hitting it off and we're together for five years and we're engaged for four and um and uh and I would go mushroom hunting with her and um and she taught me French and that's cool so I got that out of that that was that was fantastic and did some mushroom hunting but still even after that time period I was not comfortable going and identifying mushrooms by myself um do you remember the first experience um, oh yeah, yeah. So um, first in, experience of in, when I did it by myself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, in the relationship with this other woman. Your oh. first. Ex- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, uh, horrible joke. Bad joke number two. Yeah. All right. <laughs> keep it going. Keep it going. No mushroom hunting in Germany. What's it like? Um, so in 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 Switzerland and France is where I did most of it. It was um, we would go 
uh, to altitude um, and around 4,000, 5,000 feet, sometimes a little higher in the late spring. And um, Describe that spot for me. Um, so the the tree composition is um, a myriad of, of pines. Um, you would you would see uh, open fields and then stands of pines together and go riding by them and then stop and basically hop off and, and go poking around underneath those trees and move aside duff. And what you'd be looking for are things like well, mushroom, mushroom hunters call them mushrumps, which is just like a, a really funny term for there's something poking up from underneath the duff and pushing leaves up, but it hasn't emerged yet. So you see this little bump and you say, that's a mushroom and you move stuff aside and it's a mushroom that's, um, that's pushing stuff, the, the earth up, but hasn't completely emerged yet. And when we say mushroom, what we mean is a, like a fruiting body. So, um, and those are my that that those bike rides those are my first experiences but um and then you but you stopped for a couple of years i stopped for a while for three four years and and then i did it did it again on occasion with my um fiance at that time but when i moved back to santa cruz um what was that four 15 years ago now um i found the fungus federation of santa cruz and and they had um an email list and they had classes and there were there turns out there were actually books for this kind of thing there's a book called all the rain promises and more written by this man named david aurora who's from santa cruz and it's funny you could sit down and read it and it's hilarious and um and i just super geeked out on it i just i you know i have a master's degree in math and i just treated it like this is a course that i'm going to I'm going to master this now. I am going to break free of of this tethered relationship I've had with other people and other institutions, and I'm going to be able to do this independently. What were the biggest surprises for you? Um, so some of the biggest surprises um, that I've learned in, in mushroom hunting are that mushrooms don't kill you if you handle them. Um, you can handle the most deadly mushrooms on the planet with your bare hands. You could smush them all over your face and you won't get sick. Um, the f mushroom itself that you see is just a fruit body of a larger organism. Think it's a blackberry and the entire bramble, the entire plant, roots and all, all the greenery is completely invisible because it's miles, uh, it extends for miles um, underneath the surface. It doesn't go miles down, but it's miles, uh, square miles in in area. There's everywhere you walk, there's mushroom mycelium, which is, think of it in, in forests and in uh, areas where there's any kind of um, plant matter and, and anything to be broken down, any organic matter to be broken down, you are stepping on top of mushroom mycelium. Mushrooms inhabit literally um, almost every place you can imagine from Arctic regions all the way to the tropics. And, and they, they even inhabit the, the human biome. Yeast are mushrooms. Without mushrooms, no beer. Without, ye without uh, mushrooms, there's no bread. Um, some of the most prolific organisms on the planet, there's a Schizophyllum commune is the name of the, the, the Linnaean name of the, the mushroom. It has um, a distribution that is worldwide. It is literally found in every single type of habitat you can imagine minus deep ocean. <laughs> and, and that's a mushroom. So... 
um, that's one of the most amazing things I found um, that no matter where you turn, you find um, some kind of organism that fits into the kingdom of fungi. Um, further, one of the completely flabbergasting things is, uh, Kyle, have you ever seen the movie Avatar? Of course. Okay. So there's these big blue creatures running around and they're like kind of interesting to watch. And there's this whole background theme of resource um, uh, consumption and harvesting. Um, but if you'll remember, that planet has a biological internet. And the most fascinating thing about mushrooms going on today, and there is substantial research going on with this, is that there is something called the Wood Wide Web. And the Wood Wide Web, and I, I can't make this up. This is like so far out there. The, the Wood Wide Web is um, these uh, composed of these mushrooms that are called ectomycorrhizal. And what they do is they, they are symbiotic mushrooms with specific trees in a habitat and they don't even have to be the same species of trees and they intertwine with the roots and they then the mushrooms intertwine and interlock all these different species of trees oaks pines and all sorts of other species and that's the web, oaks, that's the web that you're talking and that about. is the mycelial network that's the blackberry bramble that is the the greenery the the roots that is the actual organism not the fruit body so does it actually connect with the roots it connects with the roots and what mushrooms do what these ectomycorrhizal mushrooms do is they exchange nutrients that from the soil that are really hard for plants to extract they exchange these nutrients for glucose because Plants are autotrophic. And what that means is plants are able to produce their own food. They actually manufacture energy. They manufacture glucose. And what they do is they leak or give off or whatever. We're not totally sure yet. They give off glucose to the mushroom network. And the mushroom network then gives nutrients. But this relationship is that that's like just the surface. We've known that for a while. What the Wood Wide Web does is it delivers messages from one tree to another. And the way we know this is we've injected, when I say we, the professional mycological world. I am what amounts to an, a citizen myco mycologist at this point. Um, so the, myco the, the, the group of researching mycologists have injected radioactive tracers into various trees and watched those radioactive tracers go from parent trees to their children. So their offspring, when I say that children, their offspring trees, they, we've watched those radioactive tracers go from an oak to a tan oak to a fir. And, these, and, and the kinds of messages that are getting delivered are... There, there's something called the bark beetle, which has been going around California in, in our drought years and tearing up pine forests. And what we see is we see trees that are under um, attack from this pathogen delivering a message to other trees that haven't yet experienced the pathogen that are exhibiting a, a defensive reaction to that pathogen. And, and the message we've shown with these tracers as going from the 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 tree experiencing the the pathogenic um, moment to the trees not experiencing it, even if it's a different species, even if it's a different species, and we've even seen things like glucose dumps, a tree dying, and and the, the tree is then 
takes and dumps its carbon. It dumps glucose into the system. And we found that stuff. When I say, Again, when I say we, mycologists have found that stuff showing up in other trees of different species in the environment. Like, you take it all, buddy. I can't hold on to it anymore. And this kind of research has been done by... Um, by several people, a man named Merlin Sheldrake, and uh, there's this Canadian woman whose name escapes me at the moment. What uh, what kind of defense mechanisms will trees begin to produce? So trees can exude, for example, um, certain trees can exude tannic acid, and um, there's a, a suite of other chemicals that trees will produce that make their um, their flesh, if you will, taste bad, and. Um, and so it's a it's a defensive reaction and the, and but the like the main story that I'm the the part that I'm mostly familiar with in my experiences is, is uh, and and from my reading and just walking around in the forest um, are, is that all of these trees are networked and that when you look at one tree that tree has a, a communication experience going on with another tree nearby now not all trees do this but trees that form this symbiotic relationship with there's a, a suite of mushrooms that do this. Um, and so for me now, remember how I said diving into the singular experience of like becoming a part of something bigger. Now, when I walk in the forest and I take a, a step and I look around me and I see, for example, something called a porcini, uh, which is um, at the moment it's called a Boletus edulis in the, the Linnaean name. Um, I know that, the mycelium from that mushroom is underneath me. I'm walking on top of it and is likely the conduit of information, just like the World Wide Web in an antiquated name, um, delivers messages between people, between trees. I am The forest is networked. Ecology takes on this completely new meaning. And when I said avatar, it's like the forest is alive. Yeah, you're, you're walking over Awa. It, yes. It is a community in discussion. And, and the, the, the Canadian researcher, she discovered that, that these trees even, they, they even deliver glucose to their, their progeny um, that are under stress events. So if they have one of their offspring nearby that's covered and can't produce its own glucose through photosynthesis, it starts pumping that, that tree with glucose one, so that it can survive. One tree uses the mushrooms to pump nutrients into another tree. Yeah, it uses the, the mycelial, mycelial network. Mycelial, mycelial network. The, the mushroom is the the spore that The mushroom grows. is the fruit body. Okay. Spores are... So what the 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 mushroom itself, what everybody says, oh, there there's a mushroom. That's just the reproductive organ of the network that lies beneath the soil. And that... That organism releases spores that catch the wind and move around or maybe uses some other um, uh, propagation methodology. Some of them stink terribly. There are things called basket stink horns that smell like a rotting corpse and they'll attract flies and the flies act like bees and come and collect the spores on their, their legs and then they'll start flying around and they'll go and, and um, fertilize another um, member of that same species. So are there male and female mycelial? Yeah, so mushrooms can reproduce both sexually and asexually. And some mushrooms have um, gotten so good at this sexual reproduction thing um, that they manifest 
more than 24,000 different um, sexes, which is just, it's like, it's hard to comprehend. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. The, what that what that means is that um, given any two random uh, members of that species that you find, they can interbreed. It, there's it's no like, like, it, question it, about it. It's like coral reefs. Right, um, coral reefs have that too, where there's asexual, and then there's ones that will break off. Yes. There's ones that will will all um, basically have one night on a certain moon, where they're all, well, they'll all basically ejaculate and then f- rise to the surface, and then try and find a female, and then they'll reproduce that way. Yes, correct. Yes. Okay, so mind bender huh mind bender mind bender no walk in yeah. the forest will ever be the same deep breaths deep yeah. breaths you just caused a few car crashes right now with people driving just yeah and it's a, it and fundamentally what's crazy about this is we know and we know the tip of the iceberg as far as mushrooms and and um and their their behaviors are concerned a small percentage of mushrooms have actually been uh, effectively categorized on planet earth the the kingdom is so dense with with species um there's many species yet to be discovered um it's possible for for a a a novice um mushroomer to go and find a completely new species that has barely been described or hasn't been described at all um and and so much so so little is known as an example the most deadly mushroom on the planet that we know of is uh it's called amanita phylloides it's the death cap it's responsible for 90 something percent of of the um mushroom fatalities um we don't know why it's so deadly toxic and we also don't know why it's delicious if you it, it smells a little bit like rotting fish as it gets older so animals are drawn to it and they eat it um does it kill animals oh yeah a friend of mine's dog died this year wound up gnawing on a third of a cap of um, a specimen underneath a live oak tree um, started vomiting an hour later, recovered okay, and then within sixty hours was actually convulsing, comatose, and then dead. Where um, do those mushrooms grow? Um, they're spreading like crazy. They're an invasive. They're originally from um, uh, Europe and Asia, um, and uh, they were imported to North America. I believe they hitched a ride in the, the um, I, I believe it was in the 1800s um, when people, it was all the rage to create these world gardens um, and then uh, propagated um, uh, in the new world um, from that through their normal reproductive mechanism. And they're, um, they're really tenacious and uh, adapt extraordinarily well. Um, there's some evidence that they're adapting to uh, eucalyptus trees, um, which are from Australia. Um, and where eucalyptus are an invasive as well. That's absolutely right. Um, and and there is also some evidence that they're potentially pushing out some um, some even edible species that we know, um, chanterelles, for example, from their uh, traditional um, habitats, where people used to go and find um, regular fruitings of chanterelles. Um, when they go during the, the, the season, the mushroom season, they're only finding um, Amanita phylloides or death cap. Um, and one of the... Are, are those easy to spot? Um, I think they're the first mushroom. Any, anybody who's genuinely interested in foraging wild foods um, and foraging wild mushrooms should learn to identify. And are they easy to, 
to they're identify. They're pretty, pretty easy, but they 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 disguise themselves like crazy. I mean, they're they can get beaten up by weather. They can bend their their stalk. It's called a stipe actually for mushrooms, but they can bend the 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 stipe of the mushroom, the stalk, and and then the cap can get um, malformed because they came into contact with a branch, and um, so there's a a degree of um, variation in their um, reproductive fruit body. So in the the actual physical mushroom that um, makes them a little insidious. Um, but there are some classic identifying characteristics. Which, what are those? Uh, so the gills are white. Um, the cap has a uh, olivaceous, so olive like light green or um, yellowish tint to it. Um, the spores, so the the you could think of this as essentially more or less seeds, um, but the spores that it produces are white. Um, there's a skirt um, that's a remnant of when the mushroom had fruited. Um, that's around the the stipe um, that hangs down, and if you dig the fruit body out, there's a a, a cup located down at the base of it that um, it's called a, a vulval sac. Um, and um, and that's that cup is it, it literally looks like a, a cup holding the mushroom popping out of it. And um, and if you find them early enough, it looks like a, a, an egg. Actually, it's called an Amanita egg. Um, what's also really interesting about um, Amanita phylloides is that I recently had contact with a um, with a, a mycologist from Michigan who was interested in, in some of my observations about uh, the displacement of chanterelles. Um, by Amanita phylloides in certain habitats, most specifically live oak um, and um, and uh, poison oak mixed habitats, and um, and I gave him I, I gave him a narrative about some of my findings, but he revealed to me that there's active research going on um, in uh, cancer uh, studies, so in uh, oncology, f uh, using the toxic component of Amanita phylloides. And um, and I don't have a window into to full understanding w what that entails, but to give you an idea, uh, the the pharmaceutical research world is willing to pay quite a lot of money for dried specimens, which is interesting. Um, I mean, I entertain getting a dehydrator and specifically dedicating to it, but just like any toxic uh, commodity, the 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 toxicity is experienced through a dosage, so. If I were to suddenly um, start dehydrating hundreds of pounds of these, uh, I would be essentially running a, a, a test uh, and an uncontrolled experiment on my family of what the consequences of dehydrating and spore release of of hundreds of pounds of Amanita phylloides would be on my family and myself. And and as tempting as it is, it's, it's a little bit of a... How ba how badly do I want? No wonder yeah. they pay so much. Uh, I'm just gonna give you a hard no on that one. Yeah. That's that's not really like the moral. Like, oh, I just really want to know what happens. But yeah, worst case scenario is a pretty bad scenario. Well, wait. So, uh, what uh, do you know? What kind of effects um, the this mushroom can have on cancer patients? So, what I do know is I know the, the, the way the toxins um, from Amanita phylloides um, kill people. And um, how, do they, how do they kill people? So 
in my discussions with this researcher, he indicated that said more or less that this is the, what the property that they're interested in. What what um, amanitin does, which is that amanita phylloides produces this compound that prevents um, transcription of genetic material from um, the one from and replication of DNA. So it stops um, DNA replication. The way to think about um, the the its fatal effects is that essentially the way your kidney and liver and cells that wind up getting a hold of this toxin um, begin to operate is they can no longer replicate themselves. So what you have in your body right now to take care of toxins is what you got. You don't get to produce anymore. And our bodies produce toxins on a regular basis from all the foods we eat, the air we breathe. I mean, we have to filter all that stuff out of the our out of our body, and and it's from our environment. It's just it's not like these are new things from plastics. I mean, some of them certainly are, but we've had to do this as a species. All animals have to do this. It's the the battle of pathogen and and. Um, and then host. So it's a survival thing. And what, what happens is amanita phylloides stops that transcription. And so your, your liver and kidneys are, are no longer able to produce new cells and they start to, to fade. They, they can't take care of the toxicity in the body. And so, um, it, it the, the quickly uh, though, right? Like how, like how fast, how quickly will these mushrooms have an effect on you if you eat them? Um, so you start to feel... The death caps. Yeah, so there's a couple that ha- contain the same toxin which is also an interesting thing that it was independently evolved in several very different species of mushrooms. Um, one's called the Gallerina autumnalis, which is the deadly gallerina. It grows on wood. Another one's called the destroying angel. Sounds appetizing, right? Um, and then the the Amanita phylloides or the the death cap, the death um, cap and the destroying angel and the deadly gallerina, right? <laughs> exactly. So they've all in, evolved the, this this characteristic of, of being hyper toxic, and um, because the, they they limit your abo- your body's ability to reproduce these cells that combat pathogens yeah and any toxic commodity in your body that's i mean essentially that we're always shuffling out which is why we poop and pee and things like that and get rid of toxic stuff um mostly, and we do that through poop. our we, we filter the toxins through our liver and our kidneys correct yeah. okay yeah. i mean we're we're essentially doing this now and yeah. like all the time which is why kidney failure is so dangerous it's so dangerous and yeah. they produce kidney failure yeah okay yeah um, and and ultimately liver failure failure as well. Um, so, um, and the the toxicity is is experienced by the body relatively quickly. I mean, within an hour or two of of eating eating the amanita phylloides. And these people that have eaten them report they're delicious. Um, and then they get really really sick, and then they come out of it. Um, so they, they'll vomit and have diarrhea and so on. And then they come out and they have this moment where, oh, I'm getting better. And then all of a sudden they, um, get really, really sick, become comatose and die. Or maybe we give them a liver transplant. Or, um, one of the things that's really amazing is that in Santa Cruz, we've actually, um, developed something, um, called the Santa Cruz method, um, which involves a derivative of a milk thistle, and I believe it's there's charcoal involved um, as well. Um, I'm not, I'm definitely not an expert on that, but it the technique for um, 
for rehabilitating somebody if they're in that first stage was developed in Santa Cruz. And because we have so many people that experience this um, in in our area, and um, and that and then that that technique is being exported out to other other parts of the country, and um, and I, I think past that, I, I don't, I can't speak to Europe and so on. But the 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 death is really it's fairly quick, and the the fascinating thing I may have said this earlier is we just we don't know why they're so toxic. It may be a byproduct of something else that they're doing. Um, it, biology is inherently messy. There's many genes that control for this thing. Um, evolution is a a, a, a a natural selection is a, a relatively random process where a solution is found that might have some ancillary consequences like hypertoxicity, even to the organism itself over time. So um, uh, I, I may have a, a master's degree in mathematics, but I have had a, a, a biology and evolution um, hobby for, well, since I was a little kid. And, um, and no professional mycologist that I've ever met has been able to answer the question why these mushrooms are so hypertoxic, nor why they're, they taste so delicious. And, and I, I even posited to some, some of them, uh, is, is it, is it, and it, maybe it's testable, but is it possible that these mushrooms in a sort of Sigourney Weaver alien-esque kind of way are attracting animals that it can kill and do it in a slow enough way that their spores can move far enough away and the animal that has consumed the fruit body um, expires, dies in an area that is hospitable for the organism and the soil is enriched because the organism dies. Whoa! And, and that's... I mean, so a deer will come up, it'll eat this poisonous mushroom, it'll die, it'll create more rich soil in that area, and the mushroom will benefit from the dead animal. So, yeah, from the dead animal, but you got to be careful which animals. Deer are ruminants. They consume grass. They have their digestive process is really different from uh, omnivorous animals like dogs and people and cats and things well cats what animals will will eat this mushroom Um, so it has been observed that um and i've observed it that deer there are deer teeth marks in amanita phylloides um we don't find the deer lying nearby maybe the deer's dead i don't know um but given the slope rate at which deer or at uh at which the the toxin relatively works it's not like um it's being bitten by a venomous snake in fiji and you know five minutes later you see the dead thing on the side you know uh, it, it it could be that the deer is somewhere dying we don't know but it's likely that a deer would survive it could probably even digest um the, the the toxins in amanita phylloides but people for sure can't dogs for sure can't and um and omnivores apparently seem to be most at risk um and so I mean, maybe they survive. They're so little known. Maybe they survive the digestive process. We of don't know. The research just isn't there. Yeah, there's so there. This is a. It is a wide open field. Damn it, dude! Let's just get everyone, all of the the people who are making oxycotton to just change their direction and start <laughs> studying mushrooms please i mean i know that it's not as profitable i know that they're everywhere around us but god let's just get more research around this there is there is for for students for kids that are interested in biology um 
mushrooms are essentially a wide open field. I mean, to say that mushrooms are sexy is is kind of like an ironic thing, right? Because mushrooms are the fruit body. They are the sex organ uh, of, and, and they propagate like crazy. I mean, they're, rele- they're releasing billions of spores. As you're walking around them, you're inhaling their spores like crazy. So you're a part of this reproductive process. But you wouldn't exactly say that mushroom hunters are like, the sexiest group of folks on the planet in, at close, least in cl- stereotype. close your eyes and think of a mushroom forager who do you see that's exactly right <laughs> i mean i don't you know here i am one and i'm just saying the stereotype right <laughs> right of so, course of course and we're we're shattering stereotypes left and right in this conversation that's what we're doing well good so what are the best conditions for mushrooms to grow um it varies so much by how species. about how about here in California? So in California, for the ones that we want to go out and forage. So, um, yeah, it depends on what it is that you're hunting for. If you're hunting for the table, um, by and large, uh, when I say the table, it's for um, for cooking purposes. Um, by and large, what you're looking for is um, wet weather. Um, the first mushrooms in coastal areas and coastal mountains really start showing themselves um, after uh, some rain. Some mushrooms do show up from the fog drip that occurs um, around various trees. But in serious numbers, you look for about an inch of rain and a couple weeks, and you really start to see the, 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 the reproductive um, frenzy get going. And um, Why? And, well, so th- th- that's interesting because what mushrooms do is they take the water and they pump water into the fruit bodies. Um, most fruit bodies by content are more than 60% water. So the mycelial network is there all year long. Yep. It's just sitting there doing its, it's just job. sitting there, but it needs water for the fruit bodies to produce. You got it. And, and, um, and so what it does is it takes that water and pumps it into um, silarota. So these these little nubs that then um, burst through. The, and these are for macro fruiting bodies, so things that are observable. There's all sorts of other smaller fruit bodies. And, and then there's the entire world of lichens, which are plants that um, that have – well, they're mushrooms that have – built a symbiosis with plants. They live together, essentially, like one grows inside the other. Um, so, I mean, it for, varies a for lot. Now, let's for now, let's keep it for someone who wants to go out and forage mushrooms. The, so you, what you're looking for um, is that rain. They need the rain, to the water to pump into the fruit body and then um, to uh, grow the fruit body in, big enough to, to be able to, and high enough to be able to uh, capture the wind, um, usually, or flies or people or what have you um, and uh, to spread their spores. And so, um, and then the other side of that is if you go to the, to, to the mountains, the other place where you find a lot of mushrooms in gr- high density is um, mountainous regions after snowpack melt. So when the snow starts receding up the mountainside, um, the ground is really wet um, and there's a whole suite of characteristics you're looking at for basically the way I think about it is I think about it like a combination lock. There's a, a row of about 10 different numbers and you're looking for all those numbers to line up. And then when that lines up, 
boom, a fruit body uh, uh, appears in the mountains. And a lot of times, it, and, and that's true also of coastal regions. That's what you need is you need the, the snowpack melt. You need the air temperature and the, the soil temperature to be uh, correct. You need a particular what, suite what, of trees. What's correct? Uh, it varies by species, but... How about the, here? The rule, well, in the mountains, the rule of thumb is is the air temperature to match the ground temperature um, for a series of days. Um in California, we're pretty blessed in that once it starts raining, there's just that mushrooms will show up through the raining season all the way until it essentially stops raining. There'll be more, there'll be less. It goes through cycles. There's different seasons for different species of mushrooms. They don't all pop up at once. Um, so um, the cycle goes uh, oftentimes porcini, chanterelles. Um, and then there's a suite of other mushrooms that come up like bluets and candy caps. Um, and then past that, you start to see a black trumpet. And then past that, you see um, what are called morels. And these are sort of the main big identifiable edibles that people go and harvest. Throughout that time period, you might find tree oysters growing off of dead logs. Um, and <clears throat> if, if I'm going out for a hike, where am I looking? Um, you can... You're like not to, not to my secret spots, that's yeah. for sure. Well, so yeah, that that's another thing that's a to- totally different. The, the commercial foraging and recreational foraging, there is a certain secrecy to all of it, but it really depends on the time of year. It depends on the the ecosystem that you find yourself in, and um, it depends on what kind of species you're going after. So L- let's talk about those big five. R- repeat those. There were um, chanterelles. So there's porcini. Um, chanterelles, um, and then I said uh, bluets, candy caps, and uh, morels. Um, and tree oysters grow all through that. And there's a suite of other mushrooms that you can find in there. there there's the prince. Let's stick with this. And, Let's I stick mean, with this. It gets, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. So. Um, so I'm going out there. Where yeah. am I looking? Um, so for any of those things that I just mentioned, you're looking for a, a host tree. These are um, all largely... Uh, ectomycorrhizal. They're symbiotic. They are part of the wood wide web. Um, you're looking for the tree. The tree is the, the, the starting point. You're looking for places where um, water can accumulate, where the soil isn't too rocky. Oftentimes in north facing areas, so northwest, northeast, flats okay. Oftentimes south areas, south facing areas might, often, might be too dry, but Mushrooms break all kinds of rules. Um, this year, for example, has been extraordinarily wet on south-facing slopes. I've found all of those mushrooms minus porcini um, growing. Uh, we've had a series of storms. There are places in California that have hit, in our region, Santa Cruz, that have hit 40 inch- inches of rain. So basically, you just start walking in the forest and you're going to start to see mushrooms. Today, for example, I picked a pound of bluets. I picked a pound of candy caps. Um I did a 45-minute walk in um, mixed live oak, a little bit of poison oak thrown in there, um, and um, a couple very, very small tan oaks uh, mixed in. So, Do you want another hot toddy? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You're good? All yeah, right. I'm Let's totally keep it going. Good. Yeah. All right. I'm looking for north-facing areas, inch of rain, and... Then I do you keep a book out there with you? If I'm obviously you know now what to look for, but for a beginner, what's the best way 
to take that next step and confidently pick a mushroom that you can come home and cook with? Kyle, that's a fantastic question. Um, so the, what you're essentially asking is, how do I not make myself really sick or poison myself? One of the things to remember is that um, that, that about, we'll say 1% of all mushrooms are edible uh, or are good edibles. There's 1% that are completely deadly or maybe less, but it's a small percentage that are at either end of the spectrum. And in between, they'll do anything from taste bad to make you really sick and wish you were dead. Um, and the very first thing you should do if you're interested in collecting mushrooms is go out with some wax paper bags and not plan on eating any wild mushrooms that you collect. Collect a few, make an amb ambitious goal of identifying one or two mushrooms every time you go out on a hike. And when you get to the point of being able to see a mushroom and pick it in its natural habitat and name five to seven characteristics about that to be able to tell a story about that particular species that's the moment when i personally feel you're ready to start eating this and you're ready to start serving it to other people before that moment when you just go off a oh i kind of think it's this that's when you're in trouble so um i'm i i will be i i will be very point blank about this the 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 folks that are poisoning themselves um, are not necessarily the folks that are capable of listing off the Latin name and six other identifying characteristics of that mushroom. Um, the there are the, the, there's a, a very um, widely circulated phrase in the mushroom world. There are old mushroom hunters and there are bold mushroom hunters and there are no old bold mushroom hunters. Um, so. That and then coupled with getting a good ID book and a good entry-level ID book and a fantastic one is David Aurora's All the Rain Promises and More. I hear he's, he's working on a revision of it. It's the, I believe the, the text is about 25 years old. The Latin names have changed on some of them, but he goes through the ecology and the habitat and tells a story and gives you five to seven different identifying characteristics. He gives you a, um, a, a, a photocolor plate or a picture that you're able to, to look at and compare your species with. Give me an example of a few characteristics of one of these mushrooms that you've named. So um, let's start with uh, uh, Boletus edulis or Porcini. So the Porcini is the Latin, is the Italian name. It means little pig. Um, in German, it's called the Steinpilz. In French, it's called the Sep. They're um, found in various hardwood habitats. You can find them sometimes in tan oak. You can find them in live oak. You can find them in pine. Um, they grow generally... Um, two weeks after the first inch of rain in coastal areas of California, um, they have a, uh, instead of gills, they have pores when they're, uh, they have pores throughout their life cycle. The pores start out white. They start to turn a little bit, uh, grayish green as they get older. The tissue starts to get a little softer as it gets older. They're, um, the, uh, base of it is rather bulbous. The stipe is bulbous. There's something called reticulation. It's like a cobwebby looking um, uh, appearance towards the, the cap. Um, and the cap is variable, but looks sort of chestnut brownish. If it's exposed to a lot of sunlight, it can get a little bit lighter. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit redder. There's a slight variability to that. Um, 
but I just listed off a whole suite of I am so intimate with that mushroom that when I walk by and I look around and I know the time of year I can say that is a Bolita sedulous and now I feel comfortable feeding it to people um and and developing an intimacy with these species to where you can tell that story of the entire characteristic suite this is when you can feel safely and safe and confident about going and picking mushrooms not only to feed yourself but I feed my seven and ten year old. I um, volunteer for uh, for my school and for my son's school to lead people out on a, a foray as a fundraiser, and we go and harvest um, wild edibles. And then we, in one at one institution, we cook it in the field, and the other one we cook it at somebody's house, and and then we do a, a mushroom sampler. I that's when you can feel confident to feed somebody else. What are your favorite ways to cook them? Um, Simpler is better, um, depending on how tired you are of of your bounty. So, um, I I seem to have an, a near indefatigable um, capacity for consumption of various wild mushrooms, um, just because they evoke so many different memories of of my child or my my youth of being in my 20s and of these ecosystems and being a part of something bigger um and the taste is incredible and they're really good for you um yeah they so they contain all sorts of minerals and um because of their their life cycle and what they do for trees they they contain all sorts of trace minerals um by weight a lot of them are largely protein once you extract the water as far as cooking is concerned i dry saute most of my wild mushrooms because i wash them pretty hard i don't like grit or dirt so i wash them really hard with a sprayer um i'll so and then i put them into a, a cast iron skillet um for example porcini i'll cut the cap off put it into a cast iron skillet, dry saute it until it's, uh, I like to say screaming. It's, it's making a really, uh, very loud squeaking sound, um, almost sticking to the pan and then, um, make sure the heat's not too high. And then I'll mix a little butter and olive oil. And, uh, one of my favorites is alder smoked sea salt. And, um, just a tiny bit of garlic because I don't want to overwhelm the mushroom and a little bit of pepper, black pepper or white pepper and saute the entire cap. And and this is actually um, one of the traditional Italian preparations. It's called the, the poor man's steak, which is totally ironic because in in season, sometimes these these mushrooms sell for $45, $50 a pound if they're of high quality at a, at a retail um, in a retail setting. So they're much, much more expensive than steak at this point. Um, but that's one of my favorite preparation techniques. Oh, I love it. Ooh, I'm getting hungry. I'm getting yeah. hungry. Um, and they're expensive. You, that, yeah. That's crazy how expensive some of these mushrooms are. So th- they're how many people are going out and foraging mushrooms for commercial use? Is this a big industry what's what's the deal with it yeah so that you've just opened a completely different can of worms the commercial harvest is is uh it's uh, unregulated in most places and where there is regulation um most of the time the people that are responsible for enforcing regulation don't know the regulations they don't they don't know any of the rules um has been my experience there might be a permit that you're supposed to buy, and sometimes they know that, and sometimes they don't. Um, and uh, there are there are traveling professional 
commercial mushroom hunters and they sell to vendors. Um, there's a circuit that, and they follow the fruitings uh, across the country. If you're really interested in this, there's a, a writer, his name is Langdon Cook, um, who's written about this. Um, and I believe the book is called The Mushroom Hunters. Um, it's written by Langdon Cook. It's his second book. Um, his first is, I believe, called Thought of the Land, which is also a good read. But um, So you can go around, and if you are good at this, go start foraging mushrooms. And then who do you sell it to? You sell to Farmers commercial markets or... purchasers, okay. and they pay um, a commercial price, um, which is substantially lower as it is in all industries um yeah. pending and then they, economics and then they mark up the price and they sell it to the and consumer. then they sell to vendors um if you're particularly savvy there are several um there are several mushroom hunters that have uh, decided to shorten that supply chain really dramatically and they do delivery to their uh, um, local restaurants or they'll have a website um at points my son and i who's he's 10 um, for example, last year we went into um, into the mountains, into uh, burn areas, um, and really ran into no commercial hunters and found hundreds of pounds of morels. And I can eat a lot of morels, and my family, everybody in my family loves them, um, but we can only eat so many in a year. Uh, they dehydrate really well. They preserve extraordinarily well. But when you come out of the of a of a harvest with 150 pounds of wild mushrooms it makes sense to start selling them off to at least pay for gas money so i i have um uh made a few connections in town where i'll sell them to some local restaurants or bakeries and they'll cook them into pastas or into um into like galettes in the morning that they they serve to their clientele um and and i get slightly higher than if i was prices than if i were to sell to a, a commercial distributor um but i wouldn't i don't get the same price if say i were to be setting up a grocery store and selling them to to private consumers so individual consumers who for morels in some years and dry years will pay again 40 to 45 dollars a pound um so in bountiful years they'll They'll be $25 a pound. I mean, they're subject to the same market forces of supply and demand in this country that other products are. And why don't uh, or do people grow mushrooms in a commercial way? Like, is there that ability to monocrop them the way that we do with <laughs> corn and other substances? Yeah. So or is it like, how, how does this whole thing work? So that that you're asking a, a, another like completely large can of worms like the commercial um component we, we, we tend talk to do, we tend to do this in these conversations so the, the the um the the monocropping of an organism that needs a symbiotic relationship with a, a suite of trees in order to produce fruit bodies essentially if you want to grow these organisms to any kind of commercial level you would essentially have to reproduce an ecosystem this isn't cheap you would have to grow live oaks or um, bishop pines or and, and some some mix of those trees and and then um, hope that that you would be able to harvest fruit bodies and in some kind of a number. So these these uh, ectomycorrhizal or symbiotic species are really notoriously challenging to grow. With some exception, there are. Um, truffles black truffles that are now being harvested um in california actually by todd spanier um that 
uh, trees that have been inoculated with um, uh, truffle um, mycelium. And these truffle, truffles have built uh, a, a relationship with these trees and are now actually fruiting. Um, and a lot of science and time has been going in, but it's taken 20 years to produce meaningful fruit bodies. So people have to get into the game and then wait a generation for them to produce. Now, this isn't true of all all species. You can grow um, mushrooms at a commercial level, and, and, and these are a mushroom type that have a different... Um, lifestyle these are these are largely what are called saprobes so they live off dead or decaying matter um the commercial button mushrooms crimini mushrooms portobellos these are all the same species that have slight variation in them it's garicus bisporus um and you can grow them in a a mishmash of substrate um in the dark by wetting them and and following specific processes that have been developed over this is time. indoor growth and it's all indoor and so I've that's been... what so that is like let's say i go to a non-organic zone like let's say i go to safeway and i go get mushrooms in there yeah where are those most likely coming from um a mushroom farm i mean you could go and get them at, at your small organic grocer as well that they, they would just be grown using um organic substrate or like a compost think of it as okay. a mishmash of organic compost so they don't all need big trees and different no. species of trees yeah there's different lifestyles for mushrooms okay. I and mean, the three main ones are parasitic saprophytic and symbiotic so the saprophytic is the living off dead and decaying matter parasitic is largely self-explanatory these are the ones that find a host that's alive and well and then Say, I'm going to start consuming your resources. Like, it, you could think of it as just a, another pathogen. Um, and uh, examples of that are like sudden oak death. Um, I, I forget the Latin name of the, the species. That these, are, these are mushrooms growing around an oak. Inside. Inside? Inside. Oak. They grow inside. Um, so you don't see them? Uh, largely not. I mean, if you start to to um, take off bark and and remove some of the outer layer of the tree uh, or tan oaks that are particularly vulnerable, you can start to see the threads, the white threads of mycelium through Whoa. the tree. And they're just taking all the nutrients. And they're they're just they're raping and pillaging. They Whoa. to the point and where is, they're is that the tree. is that when you see a huge tree that's fallen over and you go, oh, I wonder how that happened. Is that in California? It's probably a byproduct of the combination of the bark beetle, sudden oak death, or the and or the drought. Um, and the drought is, has has contributed to both of these because the resistance of many trees is, has been compromised because of the drought. Lack of water and resources are being consumed for just survival's sake. So the trees are already at their limit. And now this mushroom comes along and says, oh, oh you're a little bit weak. I'm going to start eating you. And you can't do anything about it. And then... An oak that's a 150-year-old tree will die and lose its limbs and fall down. And when you drive through the cent Central Valley, there's lots of oaks. And tan oaks are also particularly um, vulnerable to this. A, a great example of, of this is the American chestnut, which um, existed in the east to somewhere in the Midwest. I, their ranges, I, I don't know the exact um, stopping point for their range, but these were called the redwoods of the east. Um, these were killed off by a mushroom. There is one stand, literally one stand left of old growth American chestnuts left in America. And they used to be 
everywhere. They used to be in lining streets. They were big, beautiful trees. And a, a, a parasitic mushroom from Europe hitchhiked over to someplace in New York, uh, I believe it was, and wound up um, uh, propagating and... Um, and do we all do these. we eat that mushroom? I wish we did. We didn't. We yeah, don't. No, no. It's, it, it is. It, it doesn't produce any um, large fruit bodies. Okay. Um, and uh, it, it has various ways of reproduction, um, various vec- what are called vectors. So most of the mushrooms that we eat here in California are not parasitic. That that's generally true. Um, they're symbiotic. Is that the way that symbiotic. you, you describe it? So there's, yeah, there's, or there's parasitic, symbiotic, and what was the third? Saprophytic. Saprophytic. So, and that's the one that like, grows on cow shit or something like that. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah, or, 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 decay, or decaying matter or of yeah. anything. Okay. Or a tree that's those, like those so the, close to death that got, it's going to die anyway. Okay. Um, tree oysters live in that in that realm. It's um, so cool that these mushrooms grow on decaying matter. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just amazing when you think that there's just this death and destruction. There's it's it's very um, very metaphorical that there is this new and complex life form that is coming out of decaying matter. It's the phoenix story all over again. Yeah, I mean, the, the there's the the mushrooms that that make their livelihood of taking down these long organic uh, molecules. These are the things that make it so that renewable energy or non-renewable energy, excuse me, fossil fuels are really non-renewable. The reason why we have fossil fuels, and this is according to Paul Stamets and a few others, is that during the Carboniferous era, there was a lot of autotrophic organisms, so trees and whatnot, as well as a mixture of some uh, other um, animals um, that lived. They're organic. They're they're long organic molecules that um, these organisms are consistent of that, that were then sub- died and then subjected to intense heat and pressure, and they form this slag that we pump out of the ground, and then we purify and we turn into oil that we then gasoline and diesel and so on. This will never happen again, and largely this is because mushrooms figured out a way to produce enzymes to break this stuff down and recycle it. Um, and and that's the that's the 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 FBI so the 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 fungus bacteria and insects fungus are the the first part of that that, that they're one of the primary um, reasons why um, non-renewable energy is non-renewable that will never happen again Whew. whoa I love this <laughs> um I we need to do a round two sometime soon but what is there anything else that we obviously there's a lot that we haven't covered but um my brain is uh is sporing from the top yeah i bet it is i bet it is um i will i will leave everybody with um a a sweet little tidbit and and that and that is that um mushrooms exist everywhere when you go and you start looking around um you'll start to see them in every environment that you that you happen to find yourself in they contribute to a degree of complexity that we had no idea existed and it's not that that the ecosystems of the earth are um more necessarily a little bit more complex than we thought or um a little more networked than we thought they're 
potentially more intelligent and more networked and um, more highly evolved and integrated than we ever could have imagined. We live in it in essentially a science fiction novel from the 50s and we're just discovering that and that is incredible it is where what would you uh recommend people start with uh in terms of books or documentaries to um dive into this more and go out and start forging some mushrooms um so um, the text by David Aurora, All the Rain Promises and More. If you want to dive a little deeper, there's Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast here in California, written by Christian Schwartz and Noah Siegel. It recently came out. It's an amazing text. Um, and finally, what I would do is I would link up with your local um, uh, foraging organization. Probably where you live, there's a group of people that go mushroom hunting. You should get together with them. These people will share their knowledge they're probably the average age is probably like 55 60 65 they're probably in some places that they constitute immigrants from russia from germany um from laos that they, they um are going to be a really interesting knowledgeable group of people that have an understanding of the world that is much much different than your average citizen and when they go out in into um the forest they see so much and this kind of knowledge that has been passed on through generation after generation that we've been accumulating in our texts and so on what what we do have the tip of the iceberg so to speak is really acquisitionable through these small groups um attend a local fair um uh, in santa cruz what, this weekend what's we up have, with the fungus fair we got the fungus fair tell it's, me about it it's happening on friday saturday and sunday what am i gonna see there if i go to the um, fungus fair there's talks there's um a uh, i i helped set up uh, a couple of um displays uh we've imported different trees into the loudon nelson center um which is a a large hall um and to recreate habitats um and in an attempt to show mushrooms in the kind of environment that you would naturally not normally find them. We've labeled them with um, their taxonomic name, um, the most recent one, because these things are changing as a result of genetics uh, and our uh, ability to gene sequence. And, um, and then there are people that are, are hanging out who are um, professional mycologists who are just sitting at a table and you can bring a mushroom up to them and say, hey, I found this thing. What is this? How do I go about getting into mushroom hunting? Um, you can go and buy mushroom swag. Um, there's a kid's room. You can buy mushroom hunting knives and books and posters and t-shirts. And um, you can buy wild mushrooms that have been um, already foraged for you from commercial hunters. You can take a bunch of pictures on them and use them to, to help you in your identification process. Um, people cook wild mushrooms. You can taste all those. Um, it's a tremendous opportunity. It's generally the second um weekend in uh january so i guess that's not totally true this year it's the third weekend in january but um. all right um totally cool if not but if people want to get in touch with you do you want to provide a way for them to go for it uh sure sure um i what i would i in what I actually what i would encourage people to do is to go and find the fungus federation of santa cruz website um and join that um I teach at Pacific Collegiate School. I have a web page there um, 
some years we have a foraging club, some years we don't. Um, and, uh, and I'm on the Fungus Federation um, email chain as well. So thanks for taking the time, man. Yeah, this is a pleasure, Kyle. Thanks oh, for having me. It's too easy. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to know more about the world of mushrooms and mycelium, head over to my website, kyle.surf slash podcast. I've included show notes and resources where you can dive even deeper. Next up, we got Jim Fadiman coming on, who is an expert in psychedelic mushrooms, and we dive into that world. So look for that episode coming out soon. And until then, get outside, get in the water, have a great day.